Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. I want to spend this show remembering and honoring the legacy of the great Bob Lanier, who passed away Tuesday at 73 years of age, a Naismith Hall of Fame center with both the Pistons, with whom he was the number one overall pick in the 1970 draft, and then later in his career with the Milwaukee Bucks, where he was on some very, very good teams with Marcus Johnson, who we'll talk to later in the podcast, Junior Bridgman, Sidney Moncrief, but a Bucks group that got to a couple Eastern Conference finals, couldn't get past Boston and Philadelphia with their great championship teams of the era. But Bob Lanier was a lot more. He was a president of the Players Association, really played a part in advancing the cause for players in the union, in collective bargaining, and then for 30-plus years, worked side-by-side with David Stern and then later Adam Silver in the league office with those two commissioners as special assistant to the commissioner was his title, but really he was literally the ambassador of the NBA. He traveled the corners of not just the NBA, but of the world, selling the game of basketball, the NBA game, and and really leading in the area of education, the Read to Achieve program the NBA had years ago and stay in school. Bob Lanier was the voice of so much of that and a remarkable life. And we're going to talk with Marcus Johnson and the commissioner, Adam Silver, both about their relationships and memories of Bob Lanier. I I just want to talk for a minute about what my connection with Bob Lanier is, and it's that we share an alma mater, St. Bonaventure University in, in upstate New York. And Bob Lanier is the most famous alum of St. Bonaventure, the most beloved, decorated, don't want to say he put the school on the map, but for a lot of people, they knew of St. Bonaventure because of Bob Lanier. There were some great teams and players before him, but he was an All-American. He was the best player in the country. He was on a team in 1970 that went to the Final Four and very likely was on its way to winning a national title when he blew out his knee in the Eastern Regional Final against Villanova up like 25 points with just a few minutes left in the game. Chris Ford from Villanova, who'd later on play with him with the Pistons, would roll into his knee. Bob Lanier would need surgery. He would be out for the Final Four. Bonnie's advance against the great artist Gilmore and Pembroke Burroughs in Jacksonville, two seven-footers. Bonnie's only lose by five or seven. Uh, UCLA was at that Final Four. They would go on, of course, to win the national title. But it was the year between Lou Alcindor of course, later Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and, and Bill Walton. Steve Patterson was the UCLA center. So it is a one of the great what-ifs in St. Bonaventure history if Bob Lanier had not been hurt. And really one of the great ifs in NBA history because that first knee injury for Bob Lanier led to a number of them in his career. He played in great pain through the years and averaged 20 and 10 for his career. Really a versatile big man. Uh, had that big lefty hook and great strength. One other thing about Bob Lanier, 1968, this is a man of great principle. And this didn't get as much attention as some of the others. He wasn't as high profile on the national scene yet. But in 1968, as an underclassman at St. Bonaventure, he was one of the players who declined an invitation to play on the U.S. Olympic team and play in Mexico City. He joined Luel Cinder, who of course would later become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Spencer Haywood, 
and Elvin Hayes in protest of the treatment of black Americans in this country. And they were part of a movement. And certainly we know of Tommy Smith and John Carlos and the impact they made in Mexico City. But Bob Lanier was part of making a stand there. And, and, you'll, and you'll hear Marcus Johnson talk about it later, um, how he affected change in his life and led others and helped to lead others to do that. And so Lanier, for St. Bonaventure people, he is, he's it. And uh, we're all indebted to him. I ended up at St. Bonaventure, coincidentally, because my sister worked for one of his former teammates at St. Bonaventure, a gentleman by the name of Dale Tepaz. And nobody in my family had gone to college before. I didn't even know how to look for a college. But Dale told my sister about the journalism program and sent, sent home a brochure for me. I remember there was big pictures of Bob Lanier in the brochure and pictures of the campus and went over to visit Dale. My sister took me over to meet him at his house. And like a lot of other people, he had one of Bob Lanier's sneakers. And anybody who played with Bob, everyone kind of either took him out of his locker or Bob was generous to share them. Legend has it he had a size 22 shoe. Bob Lanier says it was actually closer to 19, but it was 22 if you looked at the international size in the shoe. But they were giant, and they were kind of considered the biggest feet in the NBA, and they ended up in, like, beer commercials. They'd have a laugh about them. And almost anywhere you'd go, when you'd go to the old Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, when it used to be on Springfield College's campus, and you bought your ticket to go in, they had Bob Lanier's shoe in the window. And a lot of people claim you go into different offices and coaches' offices and people who had been around Lanier, they all had one of his shoes. And so... I was a kid. I saw that big Bob Lanier, Chuck Taylor converse, and I was interested and and ended up having, obviously, a a great experience at St. Bonaventure. And and actually, I'll be back there this weekend to speak at their 2022 commencement, which, first of all, is remarkable for somebody. I don't think they've ever had somebody with like a 2.7 GPA back to speak at commencement, but they were kind enough to ask. And uh, I'll be proud to do it on Bob Lanier Court in our Riley Center with his number 31 uh, hanging over in the rafters. And so I know we'll feel Bob in the arena at graduation and uh, he'll be a part of it with us there. Great conversations here with Adam Silver, with Marcus Johnson. Let's get to him. But uh, God rest the soul of the great Bob Lanier. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome into NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, who, who joins us to remember the great Bob Lanier who passed away on Tuesday. Adam, describe to me, if you would, how Bob Lanier became and remained really one of the most beloved figures of the last 40 years or so within the NBA. 
Sure, Woj. So, I mean, it, it begins, of course, with Bob himself and, and the special person he was. You know, you, you've been around the NBA for a long time, and while there are enormous benefits that come with being a seven-footer, there are a lot of burdens in life, too. You're, you're a seven-footer everywhere you go. And I think Bob made a decision along the way, you know, that, that he was going to be a, a gentle giant. It was, it was interesting. I stole that term. I was watching um, inside the NBA last night after the game, and you know, Ernie Johnson, who's become a bit of the poet laureate for the league, coined that phrase and said he was a gentle giant. And I thought that was just perfect because I think a lot of times Bob, is, his reputation as a player, of course, was being a, a tough guy. And it was, I think he used that in a way, almost what, when he'd come, especially in a group, to, to a shock value when people would then see he, and for those who knew him, he was just about one of the most gentle guys I knew, you know, quick to tears, very emotional, incredibly just sweet person. I, and when I got to the league in the early 90s, you know, he was already someone that was well known to David Stern. He had been not only, of course, a, you know, an all-star player, but the president of the Players Association and it sat across from David when he was then the general counsel, um, when Larry O'Brien was still a commissioner and had negotiated um, what turned out to be a landmark collective bargaining agreement in 1983, which included what is now the essence of our system of a revenue sharing cap type system, you know, what the, the, the fundamentals of, of the drug agreement, which of course was a huge issue back in the early 80s. So, so David knew Bob well and also um, identified him as someone who could really partner with the league. And he, you know, he still, I think, had ambitions to coach in, in the mid nineties, but it, it, and, and, and I remember it was the interim coach the golden state at one point, but then made a decision that he was really going to dedicate himself to the league's youth programs. And that's where I got to know him really well. I I've been all over the world with Bob I, I, numerous times throughout Europe, um, Asia, Latin America, all over the United States where he was, I think David coined this phrase, the ambassador, um, of our of junior MBA programs. And again, I mean, the impact on kids, I mean, as time went on, I'm sure a lot of our young, the young folks we were talking to didn't know who Bob Lanier was specifically. But like, again, the presence of a seven footer coming into a classroom, talking to a kid, giving them life lessons. I mean, when we always joked about it in the league office, one of the things I loved about Bob, I, I always felt like he invented it. He, someone would say something. And depending on, you know, how good a point they'd make, he'd say, give me one clap <laughs> you know, or give me two claps, you know. And I mean, we used to love being with him. And, and I just have to say, I mean, you know, the travel that we, and, and again, you're part of this family that, that comes with covering the league or being around the league. Um, we're all spend so much time together in airports and hotels and restaurants and arenas. You really get to know someone. And again, you know, for the all the glamour, of course, that comes with being an NBA star from the guys from the older days, um, they didn't come wait, leave the league with a lot of money. And so Big Bob was flying commercial, you know, Big Bob. I remember numerous times in New York City when we'd be all out to going out to dinner, he'd be going back to his hotel and we'd be, you know, long before Uber, we'd be hailing yellow cabs and like that just – 
I have that image of how Bob used to have to climb into the back seat of a yellow cab in New York City. It was sort of, you know, head first, upper body, <laughs> like kind of give him a shove. There's like like the inconveniences that come with being Big Bob and his famous size 22 shoes. Um, anyway, I mean, he he was so beloved by everyone, became um, such a close friend of mine and my wife's you know, over the years. I mean, I, I really loved him in every way. And it's, it, it, and, you know, passing way too young these days and really suffered with a bunch of different health issues over the last few years. So again, just, just a big loss for all of us. You know, you talk about just physically Bob getting around. He was in a great deal of pain for very much of his career, a number of knee injuries. He played in pain and you know, it's painful to carry those injuries into your post-career. Like you said, climbing in, the, people don't realize that. You know, you weren't flying, you know, travels different at the commissioner's level, I think, now in terms of, you know, private planes, but everything was commercial. Then the teams, you know, Bob played in an era where they were flying commercial. And so uh, you, you, I think you probably saw some of that too, that physically it was difficult because you guys went everywhere together. He, You said all over the world, you guys really leaned on him. We did. And he always answered the call. I mean, Bob, I don't know precisely, but he had some of those years was on the road, probably 200 plus days a year. And I said, going everywhere. And it really, it wasn't just the league because when he make an appearance somewhere, then others would call on him and, and mostly not for profit groups. I mean, Bob had a few, you know, low-level endorsement deals post-playing career, but largely he was going because the, the the interest in him was there and he understood the impact he could have on people. Um, and yes, I mean, a lot of pain along the way. I, and again, times were different. And, I, you know, we a modern-day NBA issue, NBA issue we talk a lot about is load management and appropriate rest. And, and of course, there's a place for that. And part of it is in response, not just the modern NBA performance issue of optimal performance if you get the right sleep and the right rest, but there's no doubt. I mean, we look at some of the players from Bob's generation and playing took a toll on them. And I remember Bob once said to me, we, there, when plantar fasciitis was all the rage, this goes back a number of years, he said, you know what they used to call that when I played? I said, no, what? He said, he said, hurt foot. <laughs> He's like, you just played, you know? And, you know, you, we all hear that from all the older players these days, but they say it not necessarily to suggest that NBA players should suffer the way they did. But, and it wasn't just playing through injuries and pain. And in addition to playing commercial, it often meant that you were, they would schedule the first commercial flight out the next morning to make sure if there were delays that they got to the city in time. So you had guys finishing games, you know, 10 o'clock at night, dinner, whatever, whatever, going out. And then the commercial flight would be leaving at 6 a.m., which would mean they would be getting picked up at their hotels at 4.30. So it was also enormous amount of sleep deprivation. I mean, it's just bad for your health and, and something... That, that's always the issue to me today, like finding the right balance because we don't want to go back there. And Bob really suffered from it. And I, I said, he, he never, though, 
he never asked anybody to feel sorry for himself. He never complained. Um, and that's what made him so special to be around us with these groups because he loved life. He really embraced it. When he was the guy, when we would go to these cities all, all around the world, I'd say, oh, I got to go back to my room and I got to do emails or make calls or whatever else. He's like, let's go. Let's go. We got to go out in the town. We got to go to a restaurant. We got to see what's going on here. And again, when you're seven feet tall, wherever you are in the world, like that's a conversation starter. <laughs> you, know, you don't just go in a restaurant and sit in the corner. He's talking to everybody in the restaurant. He's talking to, you know, if, if, if you're, you know, on public transportation or if you're just walking down the street, even for people in markets where they didn't know the NBA or know specifically who Bob Lanier was, they somehow knew this guy's associated with the league and, and they wanted to be, to, to talk to him and he wanted to talk to them. So um, he, the, it, ambassador was the perfect way to describe him. Adam, Bob played a real significant role. You think back to those, you know, NBA programs, read to achieve, stay in school in a pre internet day, a pre-social media day, those were such programs associated with the NBA. And you saw them on, you know, game telecast, you saw them on the halftime show, you, 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 you saw them in your local newspaper when a team, when, when the league was coming through town. And I know for him, education was such a passion. We obviously share an alma mater in St. Bonaventure and it always felt like when you think back to that time, Adam, Bob was the face really of that program. And like you said, he walked into, I bet you can't count up how many classrooms and how many cities and how many countries he walked into with an NBA shirt on. That's absolutely right. And it is, we're back to an era, you know, pre-social media, certainly maybe early days of the internet where it felt like being there in person not only meant more, but in many cases was the only option. And as I said earlier, um, it wouldn't matter what the scale was of the opportunity. It wasn't if, as if Big Bob was saying, you know, I'm only showing up if there are 500 kids. I mean, he and I did several things together over the years where it was a classroom of 20 kids or 25 kids. And he brought all the same energy, all the same passion to the small classroom as he did, as you said, we remember for years, we did those stay in school celebrations at All-Star. Um, he was the host of those. And, you know, in those days they were on NBC and they were simulcast on multiple networks. Again, just a, just a different time, but he was the face of those programs and the public service announcements. We ran those games. He was the voiceover for those. He was often the narrator for those spots. I mean, just also real quickly too, Many years ago, I signed up in New York City. They, had a, they have a program called Principal for a Day. And you're, you're assigned to a particular school. And I was assigned to a school called the Dual Language Middle School on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. And I said, Bob, would, would you go with me? Part because I had no experience um, public speaker and certainly speaking to a group of kids. And Bob adopted this school. And he and I went back um, every year for more than 10 years. And, you know, he like he was the familiar face for the kids and he had a special message for each kid. And, and it was also a message, too, of optimism and, and hope through education. 
because I think it would it was counterpointal in a way because here was this guy who had this incredible NBA career, yet he was the one coming in saying, pointing to me and saying, you have best, and I wasn't the commissioner then, you have a lot better shot to be him than me because at the league office, there's lawyers and accountants and salespeople and communications people, marketers, look at all these jobs. They employ thousands of them. It's a real long shot to be me, but if you love the MEA, you can, it's achievable to become someone who works at the league office or at a team or in sports in some other way. And, and I think those messages that came from him about education, you could tell really resonated because people come up to me now that I've been with the league for so long who are now adults will say, I don't remember, like maybe I, like, they're not saying I remember when you came to my classroom. They say, I remember when Bob Lanier came to my classroom and delivered that message about hard work and how meaningful it was to me. That's remarkable. Adam, I appreciate you taking time to remember the great Bob Lanier. I know I will see you uh, down the road here in these playoffs. Safe travels to you. Yeah, thanks, Woj. And, and on behalf of everyone at the NBA, I really appreciate you doing this tribute to Bob. Welcome into Marcus Johnson, one of the great forwards in the history of basketball, an all-NBA player, a multi-time all-star, and the teammate of Hall of Famer Bob Lanier's in Milwaukee. February 4th, Marcus, 1980, Bob Lanier is traded from the Pistons to the Bucks. What do you remember about that day? What did it mean for the Bucks that Bob Lanier was arriving? I first ran into Bob after the trade was made at the All-Star game. I don't know if it was Cleveland, Washington. I forget where it was that year. But, but we were in an elevator. And so Bob had just been traded. Or there was rumors that he was about to be traded. It was, it was just me and Bob in the elevator. And so it was a little silent at first. And so I was like, uh, so, so Bob was like, yes, I guess we're about to be teammates. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's what I hear. So Bob's like, are you going to pass me the ball? I'm like, well, are you going to do anything with it? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to do something with it. I said, like, well, if you're going to do something with it, I'll pass you the ball. So we both <laughs> laughed. We both laughed. I was like, now, what's up, man? You done missed most of this season with some injury. Are we getting damaged goods? What's going on? So he pointed to his right pinky finger. I sprained my right pinky finger. Maybe broke it. I was like, wait a minute, you didn't miss all this season because you broke your non-shooting hand pinky? Are you telling me you that soft big fella? He just busted up laughing. So we started off just on great terms, just kind of kind of, you know, kidding with each other and, and digging at each other. But once he got to Milwaukee, he played right away. And I, I just looked it up because I knew we had this incredible finish to the season, 1979, 1980. I think we were 20 and 6 from that point on the rest of the year largely due to the presence of Bob Lanier and the, the kind of um, abilities that he brought to the, to the team on the court. But what's more importantly, Bob gave us this, this sense of, of, of toughness that we'd never had before. And Bob, I mean, I watched Bob choke out Kevin McHale, get into a, a kicking battle on the floor with Tom Burleson, uh, uh, just go at different players. Uh, Bill Cartwright and him were just, you know, arch nemesis against each other, broken noses. They, I think they, they dealt out to each, and, and Bob went into the locker room after Bill had broken his nose, and, and Bob was like, that's what you get. See, you did that to me, now that's what you get. I mean, but, but, but <laughs> that was just Bob. But one of the smartest, most genuine, 
warmest people that I've ever been around. And uh, we just loved him to death with the Milwaukee Bucks once he got there. You went on to great success. You, you and him were paired really through his retirement. And right about the time he retired, you were traded. You went to L.A. And so you won the division title every year those five years, a couple conference finals, and you kept running into the same teams, Philadelphia, Boston, and ultimately weren't able to get over the top there. You guys were in your own right at that time. You, Bob Lanier, Sidney Moncrief was coming into his own. Don Nelson was a younger coach in the NBA at that time. I don't think people realize, Marcus, the pain with which Bob Lanier played basketball, multiple knee surgeries, tremendous physical pain. And I think if some, if, a, if he had been a player injury-free and was a little more mobile, yeah. it might be looked at differently in the context of history. I mean, he was an eight-time All-Star. He was a 20-10 and 10 player. But I would imagine you saw that day in and day out, just the physical pain he went through to play in the league then. And I've always said, Roach, that if we would have gotten Bob Lanier two years earlier, you know, when he, when you look at his numbers with the Pistons, two years before he got to Milwaukee, he was probably 24 and 12, you know, 24 points, 12 rebounds. By the time we got him, he was more of a 16, 17 point per game, seven or eight rebound per game center, which was still really, really good. And then all the other aspects, his ball handling, his shooting, he didn't get enough credit for his perimeter skills. In today's game, I'm not saying he'd be Nikola Jokic, but he you could use him on the high post. He was a great passer. I often tell this story that after practices and shoot-arounds, uh, you know, here's Bob smoking his Vantage cigarettes. This is after practice with his Bucks green warm-up top and some slacks on and, and a big size 22 Converse shoes. But he and Junior Bridgman would have these three-point shooting contests. And the loser would have to buy lunch. So they never held each other to it. But the point is, is that he would beat Junior Bridgman, one of the greatest outside shooters I've ever seen in my life. He would beat Junior Bridgman more often than not in those shooting games. And my, and, and most of it well, was mind game, just talking to him and then psyching him out. And, oh, yeah, yeah you can't see that. That's all you know, you, you got to twist your mouth to make a shot. You don't twist your mouth. Yeah, he, he would talk Junior out of, out of making shots. But he was so versatile as a basketball player people don't understand how quick he was i was i was a good tennis player back in those days you know b level uh b minus level tennis player i could never beat bob lanier bob lanier would get to these drop shots that norm nixon couldn't get to when i played against norm bob's quickness even with the bad knees woes at that point in time was unbelievable just a real solid golfer just this great all-around athlete for guys 610 about 270 pounds at the time so he was just a specimen of athleticism and, and, and IQ and smarts and president of the Players Association and all those things kind of rolled into one. And, and we were just fortunate. He was, he was like, a, like, like, like God's gift to us as a franchise for all those reasons above uh, once he came in, in February of uh, 1980. President of the Players Association at that time, Marcus, when you look back at him, why was he the choice at that time? You and your peers vote on it. What was it about Bob that commanded the respect to hold that position and, and to be somebody at the forefront of some, some real collective bargaining advances for the union at that time? It had a lot to do with just his larger-than-life type persona that he projected from the 
time he first was rolled into the league. He came in off of, off of, I think, a horrendous knee surgery out of St. Bonaventure as a, I think, a number one pick. Was he number one pick in that draft? I, number I one number one pick no, overall. Number one pick. But I remember him in that wheelchair with that, that long cast on his leg uh, from the knee surgery. But, but the players respected him, Rose, because of his intelligence, his ability to connect with different players. I don't care, white, black, in between. It didn't matter. Bob was good with everyone. He would hang out with Steve Mix as much as he would with myself and Junior Bridgman and the rest of the crew. He was comfortable. He'd hang out with the coaching staff. He and Nelly and John Killalay and, and uh, Gary St. Jean and all these, Dave Wohl. I mean, I mean, you know, all these coaches, Jeff Snedeker, the trainer. I mean, he was just one of those guys that could cross all types of, of, of social lines and be real comfortable, real comfortable in his own skin and uh, would always, you know, get, get on me about learning how to play golf because that's, that's where the, the boardroom deals are made on the golf course, you know, just, just little things like that, being be involved in the, in the league's um, uh, program for, for reading for children. I mean, he was always on me about doing things like that. He was always on me, Roach, about joining and being a board member with the Players Association. But at that time, he was president. We had Junior Bridgman with the Bucks, who was vice president. Quinn Buckner, I think, was secretary. Steve Mix was the treasurer. I'm like, Bob, there's no room for me. What, what about, what about, what about I'm going to sweep up after you guys? But, but, but those conversations, you can imagine, during the time of, of, of the salary cap and 53% of the gross and all that stuff that was going on, we were privy to as a team with the Milwaukee Bucks, those bus rides. We were privy to as a team of, uh, of, of getting firsthand information from Bob and Junior and the rest of the guys that was just invaluable in terms of, of, uh, of, of what it taught us and what it showed us about the importance of kind of seeking what we deserved as players. So Bob, he was not afraid to speak his mind. He was almost kind of a revolutionary black man, but, but with the intelligence to understand that things had to be done without demonstrations and sit-ins and all that stuff, but there were ways to do things and ways to get things done on the inside. And Bob was this perfect kind of an inside man that represented the interests of the players and, and uh, the players, I think, collectively respected him for it. Marcus, you talked about the physicality of Bob. I mean, he was a, he was a physical force at a time when that's how the center position, the center position looks different now. But Bob was really a prototype in a lot of ways. You think of his career at Bridged. He came in the league against Wilt Chamberlain, Willis Reed, Kareem. Later in his career, when you played with him, you are playing Moses Malone, Robert Parrish. He spanned really some, some interesting eras at that position. But you got beat up, right? Playing that position in the low post. A lot was allowed, obviously much more than we would ever see today. How much did Bob dish out? How much did Bob take in that era, in the middle? You know, he didn't take a whole lot I mean, because he was so smart. He, he was smart, Woj, and he was, I talked about his versatility, his athleticism. He had this sweeping left-hand hook he'd come across the lane with. He was an expert mid-range jump shooter around the free throw line. He was a guy that I knew. We had this uh, special plays for him, this five series of plays that we go to. You look at scoring frequency, the things they chart nowadays, he'd probably score 70, 75% of the time, either free throws or get the bucket. He was just so smart, pump fakes, uh, getting centers off balance, getting them out of position, drawing contact. He was an expert free throw shooter. I don't know what his career percentages was, but I would guess high 70s. I mean, and, but the most important thing was 
he didn't miss in the clutch. And he was the kind of guy that if he, if he was at the free throw line, and I wish I had this mindset myself, if he was at the free throw line and the opponents started talking to him at the free throw line, oh, come on, Bob, you can't make these. Bob would talk to them while he's shooting the free throw. Yeah, yeah, you want to put some money on this? Like this. And if, he, if they hit the rim, I don't want it. You know, swish. Then give me that message. You got something else to say? Oh, fella, yeah, watch that. And he would talk as he was shooting free throws, talk trash to, to the opposition. And, 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 and you sit there, and, and me and Sidney Moncrief, we were both kind of quiet by nature. We just sit, look at each other, just marvel at the kind of confidence he exuded on the floor. And that really helped us. And as, I, as you mentioned, we ran into the, you know, the, the, the Bostons with the Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, Larry Bird front line. I think Philly, we could have gotten them if they had not traded for Moses Malone. But once they got Moses and Carwell Jones and Dr. J and Bobby Jones, I mean, those front lines were just too talented for us to deal with. But uh, it wasn't because of Bob Lanier and what he brought to the table. And I really do believe if we could have gotten him a year or two sooner when he, he was still a 23 and 12 guy, it might have been a little bit different. But he was just a remarkable man to play with. And, and I just marvel just remembering in my own mind right now some of the things he was able to do on the floor. Marcus, when was the last time you had a chance to speak with Bob? The last time I spoke to Bob, I was uh, writing a screenplay about the life of, of Reggie Hardy who played for the Pistons in the early 60s and was still around around the early 70s when Bob first got there. And so I reached out to Bob to get, I think, Dave Bing's number. Dave Bing had actually played with Reggie. And I reached out to him, Roach, and he did get right back to me. I, tried to, I called him several times. And finally, when we did connect, he told me that he was in a bad way physically and that it was tough for him to get to the phone. And, 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 and if he didn't respond, it was because he was dealing with some things physically. I actually reached out to him about a month ago just a, a random text where it's like, hey, big fella, thinking about you, love you, just wanted you to know that I, I, you know, I love just knowing you and playing with you as a teammate and just, you know, I, I know you're struggling, but, but, but hope it's not too bad. And then I found out through uh, my son, Chris, who's a good friend of yours, that, that you had told Chris that Bob was in a really bad way. And so I knew I wasn't going to hear back from him, but I was hoping uh, just in some way that that text got to him so he would know about a month, two months ago, I was just thinking about it, just thinking about him and and just reminiscing about all the good times that we had uh, in Milwaukee. Well, Marcus, uh, I love getting to visit with you today about Bob. I think your time together really was, I think, an apex for Bob Lanier in the NBA. And I think uh, Milwaukee, I think he looked back at Milwaukee as a real special time in his career. It was a move I think he was anxious to make and to get with a team and to play with you and your group that, that achieved a lot. And uh, certainly I think there's going to be a lot of remembrances of Bob yeah. Lanier uh, here in the coming days. And, and I'm thrilled that, that you and I could spend some time talking well, about him. It, just quick, just quickly, Bob, he, he came out and said, uh, this is uh, maybe two or three years ago, was that, that during those, that time period, early eighties, that, that he thought I was a better forward than Dr. J. And Julius got so mad at Bob Lanier for saying it from, from like <laughs> 79, 80 to about 83, 84. And so that's the kind of, I think, respect that he had for me. And, and I just appreciate, you know, just him kind of speaking his mind and, and saying what he believed at that time. And it was just a mutual kind of a love affair in terms of us playing together as teammates and, and being friends all these years. No, it's, it's, it's great stuff. And it's these, these are, I know, special relationships that span Yep. the years and and I imagine mean more now than as much as they meant then I think they probably mean as much now for guys like you Marcus who have had a chance to be teammates with and play with 
the greats, and, and certainly Bob Lanier was one of the greats both on and, and off the court in basketball. Marcus, thank you for this. Um, again, condolences for your loss, and, and thanks for taking some time to, to remember the great Bob Lanier. And thank you for celebrating the life of a great man, great player, and a guy that I will you know, love eternally. Thank you, Will. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.